calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. For those of you new to the Drabblecast, you should know that while flash fiction is the name of our game, there is one other thing that we're really passionate about here. Big Badass Animals. That's right. Today in the Drabblecast world, a new creature will join the ranks of Hogzilla, Monster Pig, Colossal Squids, and the Ringdokus. It's been called the Electric Lightbug, the Fish Killer, and the Toe Biter, but its most common name is the Giant Waterbug. I've been fascinated with these things for a while, and you're about to see why. First, I'll give you some bona fide factoids about these critters, and then I'll tell you a few anecdotes that'll make your skin crawl. You're probably thinking to yourself, skin crawl? Psh, it's just a little water bug. I ain't gonna do nothing to me. Well, that's where you're wrong, friends. The giant water bug looks pretty much like a big cockroach, about three to four inches long, except it's got some strong front legs that jut out, which it uses to pull prey toward it so it can suck out the prey's body juices through a strong beak. It spends a lot of time on the bottom of ponds chasing down fish, or at the top of the water collecting air with a snorkel appendage and storing the air under its wings for later diving. All right, well, that does sound kind of spooky, but I don't go swimming in ponds very often. Well, friends, that doesn't matter either, because this bitch flies, too. Swimmers get bit by these things fairly periodically, but so do people minding their own business in the park. So do ducks, bullfrogs, snakes, all sorts of things. You see, the giant water bug latches onto its prey with hooked legs, and after gouging you with its beak, it immediately starts pumping in digestive enzymes. Eventually, it drinks its prey's insides through its nasty little mouth's trough. You can find these monster bugs throughout most of the U.S. and much of Canada. 
Hell, I was in Tallahassee, Florida two weeks ago in the parking lot of a Mexican restaurant with a couple of buddies, and one of these things slammed into my buddy Patrick's crotch area. No joke. Then it started playing dead. That's another thing that these things are famous for. So watch it if you come across one and he's not moving. Another friend of mine in Georgia said she had one in her swimming pool one time, and it started swimming after her, zipping back and forth under the water. I didn't believe her back then, but she swore the thing was coming after her. She was trying to swim away and it was all changing directions to get at her. She said it was crazy determined, and she was trying to push it away with her floaty. The thing really freaked her out. They got her out of the pool before it could bite her, and the thing went into the pool filter. They pulled it out with a net, and they thought it was dead from the chlorine and stuff because it wasn't moving. After about five minutes of flipping it over and ogling it, the thing's wings snapped open, and it took off straight up, getting caught in her hair. She shook it out, and it took off up into the trees. Not freaked out yet? Well, here's a snippet from the Buffalo News in 1999 about the giant water bug by an ornithologist. A woodpecker uttered cries of distress and fluttered and fell down out of a tree. A very large bug was found attached to its head. Its beak was inserted in the back of the head, and its legs clamped tightly around the bird's beak. This reminded me of an episode when I was a child. I saw a robin flying with a big bug firmly clamped onto its back. I was left with nightmares. You can go to our forums at www.drabblecast.org to see some photos of the toe biter and to post experiences you may have had with one. Well, today's story has nothing to do with giant water bugs, but it's still pretty damn good. It's a fantasy piece called The Silver Ring, and it's by Joanne Hall. Joanne lives in Bristol, England with her partner. She enjoys writing fantasy and has been lucky enough to have short stories accepted by From the Asylum, Afterburn SF, Art and Prose, and The Harrow, among others. She's also had her New Kingdom trilogy published by ePress Online. You'll find a link to her website in our show notes. So without further ado, The Silver Ring by Joanne Hall. Lars flung the fish down on the table and left for the tavern. He slammed the door behind him so hard it rattled. Dell dashed angry tears from his eyes and stared at the corpse. The fish stared back, its gray eye unblinking and glazed in death. The scales on its back were golden, the color of the wheat fields of his boyhood. Before the famine came, turning the world to gray, and the grease and grime of the city had robbed his life of luster. His father, face hewn by grief into cold granite, took him to the distant city market, where Lars had bought him, and brought him home, at first as a slave, and later to the older man's bed. Lars reminded him, with fists and tongue, that he should be grateful. He was lucky Lars had freed him, took care of him, brought fish for the table. He should remember his place, and never forget what his lover had done for him. Without Lars, Dell would be nothing. But with Lars, he felt like even less, a speck of dust tumbling to the whim of the breeze. He felt tears burning again, and slammed his fist on the table in impotent rage, making the knife jump. 
The clatter it made brought him back to his senses, and he took it to the gut of the fish with a silent sigh. Lars would demand a hot meal when he staggered in. Dell slid the blade through the slippery silver of the fish's belly, ripping out pink intestines with clumsy fingers. As he worked, his hand fell on something unexpected, something that had no place in the innards of a dead fish. He carried it over to the sink and sluiced away the gore to reveal a bright silver ring. Dell turned it over, wondering at the value. It was only silver, but an intricate little thing, finely wrought, with a delicate design of fish and mermaids running around the outside. It would fetch a lot of copper if he took it to the right man. Not today, but he would add it to his hoard. Dell's magpie eye had helped build the hoard. A brooch he had spotted in the street, an old necklace that had once been his mother's, a stash of copper coins, all hidden under the loose floorboard behind the dresser once he realized that Lars claimed anything of value. Repayment for the cost of Dell's life, Lars insisted, while in the next breath Dell was worthless, fit only for bedding and cooking. Mischievous impulse overtook Dell as he stood there, and he slipped the ring onto his smallest finger, the only one that it would fit. He held it up the light to admire it, but the fading bruise on his wrist caught his eye, and he quickly turned from the window. The thought rose in his mind how he yearned to be free of Lars, free of the unfamiliar city where people stared and silently judged. They knew what he was, how he earned his keep. Lars made no secret of it. Dell longed for the shining fields and bright colors of his childhood, where nothing sordid could intrude. The ring tightened around his finger, and then loosened, as if offering a comforting squeeze. Dell sighed again. If Lars saw it, he would demand it from him and sell it for ale money. Dell needed the copper it would bring, but much more than Lars. He tugged at the ring to remove it. It refused to budge. He tried again and again, until he was sweating and cursing. He tried with soap, fish oil, and spit, but the ring stayed so firmly on his finger it could have been welded there. His face was hot with frustration by the time he was forced to give up. If he couldn't get the ring off, Lars wouldn't be able to either. That was a small consolation. He hadn't realized how long he'd spent struggling with the ring. Dusk was gathering, and Lars would be home soon. He didn't have time to make a stew now. He would fry the fish instead. With luck, Lars would be so drunk he would only pay attention to the food and not notice the ring. The fish was sizzling in the pan when Lars tumbled through the door, flushed and reeking of smoke. "'Is that not ready yet, boy?' he demanded, pulling out a chair and flinging himself onto it. On the way. Dell turned the fish out onto a plate, added a knob of butter and a pile of steamed greens, and whisked it over to the table. As he set the plate down, Lars caught his wrist. Dell tried not to wince. What do you got there, Dell? Lars twisted his hand painfully to get a look at the ring. Now, where'd you find that? Inside the fish. 
His stomach nodded. He knew Lars wouldn't believe the story, and he steeled himself for the blow he knew was coming. Lars snorted. <laughs> Don't lie to me. You stole it, didn't you? Let me have it. I might forgive you. He still had his hand on Dell's arm, and Dell hoped he couldn't feel him shaking. He despised himself for his cowardice in the face of Lars's anger, but the man was too quick with his fists. I, I can't, he said. I can't get it off. <laughs> we'll see about that. Lars seized the finger, tugging and twisting, until Dell feared the bone would snap. Angry tears stung his eyes, but he didn't cry out. The first lesson he had learned was to never make a sound. It only made things worse. Damn, boy. Have you glued this onto your finger? Lars threw Dell's hand down and leapt to his feet, reeling slightly. I'll have to try something else. Dell spotted the knife he used to gut the fish, still resting on the cupboard by the sink. He edged towards it, one careful foot at a time, hoping Lars would be too drunk to notice. Where are you going? Lars spotted the blade as Dell's hand closed around it. <laughs> do, do you think you can threaten me? I own you, boy. Not anymore. Where had this defiance come from? Dell could hardly believe the words tumbling from his mouth. I'm leaving. Don't try to stop me. He backed slowly towards the door, brandishing the knife in front of him. With a roar of fury, Lars lunged toward him. Dell ducked under his flailing arms, lashing out blindly. He felt Lars's blood gush warm and wet over his hand. Dropping the knife, he fled, out of the door and into the road. The street sloped down to the harbor, and he ran that way, heart thumping, breath coming in small, tight gasps. On bare feet, every stride was painful. Lars was only a few steps behind him, clutching at his side and cursing loud enough to bring the women of the town to their windows. Dell emerged to the wharf and skidded to a halt, trapped. A couple of men were unloading a catch, and they looked at him with curiosity. He hobbled towards them. I need help. Lars bellowed behind him, and he took off again. Ahead of him loomed the sheer sea wall. There was no way out there. He was trapped between the cruel sea and his crueler master. The men had abandoned their nets and were strolling towards him, either to his assistance or Lars's, but they were too far away. They moved too slowly. They would never reach him in time. Lars advanced, so close Dell could see the red veins in his eyes, smell the stink of ale on his breath. He waved the knife, trying to focus. Blood oozed from between his groping fingers as he grasped the wound. Give me that ring, Dell. Go sink yourself. Dell dodged, but Lars was too quick for him. His meaty hand clasped Dell's forearm, forcing his hand towards the blade. He twisted in the fierce grip, wrenching free with all of his strength, and stumbled back. The stone of the wharf was slick with salt spray, and his ankle turned. He slipped, clutching at the stone to save himself, and felt it tear the calloused skin of his palms. The salt stung the open wounds like a brand, and he let go. As his body hit the water, it felt like a punch in the gut. 
He had no time to draw breath, and as he sank down into the filthy water of the harbor, the sea flooded into his open mouth and nose. He could see nothing but confusing shapes distorted by the water, and a fearful tremor ran the length of his spine. The shiver grew. It was as if Dell's backbone was twisting in all directions. His hands dropped to his sides, fusing. He opened his mouth in a silent cry for help, heedless of the water flooding into his lungs. He was drowning. He tried to kick out, to force his way back to the surface, but his legs had merged into one flexible limb, propelling him through the water. As if by a miracle, his lungs cleared. The fire left them, and there was no more pain. He thought for a moment he was already dead. Understanding came with a sickening jolt. He could breathe, swim, underwater, no longer feeling the cold. The world he had tumbled into, far from the dull gray of the harbor, was suddenly rich and blue, alive with sensation. The tide tugged at him like a lover wanting to play, and he let it roll over and embrace him. He realized he had lost his arms and legs, but his body felt like one huge mobile muscle. His thoughts were still that of a man, but his body had transformed. Rolling over in the sea, he could see himself, scaled, and with a great forked tail that propelled him through the water. On his right flipper was a circle of silver scales. It looked a lot like a ring. Feeling suddenly daring, Dell twisted his back and swam up to the surface of the water, beneath the harbor wall. Lurking just below the surface, he could see Lars leaning right out over the water. Tears trickled down from his eyes. His mouth was open, and it looked like he was calling out. He appeared hazy and unreal, already a part of a life that Dell had left behind. With a flick of his tail and hardly a regret, Dell embraced his new existence. The whole ocean lay before him, a world of blue and green. There would be color in his life again, as long as he stayed away from Lars, from the city and its creeping nets. Well, that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. I like happy endings. I'm glad the author ended the story there, before the Nazgul inevitably started busting Dell's balls. Feedback for episode 41, Set Another Place at the Table, I'm Bringing My Pimple, by Kim McDougall. This one got mixed response. Anne Savoy said, I enjoyed it. I tend to enjoy gross fiction. Though, unlike Norm, I was actually a little bit thrown, not by the pimple's sudden anthropomorphism, but by the protagonist's first reaction to this development. I found it curious and a little unbelievable that someone's first reaction would be a maternal one that then eventually turned to revulsion. But hormones can certainly screw you up. T. Baker said, Well, I enjoyed it. I had a hard time believing she skipped the fear stage and didn't call a doctor. 
From there, the discussion descended into depths of grossness that wouldn't really have been appropriate anywhere else but in a forum discussing a story called Set Another Place at the Table I'm Bringing My Pimple. Two words. Gamete consumption. Anyways, yeah, so just a quick reminder about two things going on that you listeners need to take advantage of. First, write a Nigerian scam spam email for our contest. Guidelines to that you will find on our website. It's exactly what it sounds like, though. A contest to see who can write the most creative Nigerian scam spam email. The other thing going on is round one of the People's Choice Drabblecast Awards between seven past Drabblecast stories. You should drop by and support the story you like the best by voting for it on our private poll. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can share it with your pals. We rely on your generous donations to pay our authors. Please consider throwing a few bucks our way via the secure PayPal link on our website. Our staff is made up of co-editors Luke Coddington, Kendall Marchman, and myself, Norm Sherman, reminding you that it might just be playing dead. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.